0: Today's message was recorded live at the Middletown Seventh-day Adventist Church of Louisville, Kentucky, a safe environment where people relationships become kingdom relationships. Find us online at www.friendlychurch.com. If you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. You know them. You know this passage. You have read it and you have probably memorized it. Today I'll be using... New King James Version, and sometimes the NIV, the New International Version. This comes from the New King James. John 14, verses 1 to 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Who said that? Who pronounced those words? Who pronounced that promise? Jesus. He pronounced that promise to his disciples right before he went up to heaven. In Revelation, Jesus says through John the Revelator, he declares four times, I am coming quickly. Do you believe Jesus is coming again? Amen. I do. And you may say, Pastor Marius, how do I know Jesus is coming again? And how do I know that He is coming soon? I will answer that question with an illustration. Many years ago, Dr. Guinness attended a concert where Handel's Oratorio, The Messiah, was performed. I love that. I sang all the arias from Messiah, the tenor arias from Messiah. I love that. A man sitting next to him asked after the performance had gone a couple of hours. So two hours into the performance, this man asked Dr. Guinness how long he thought it would continue. And he answered, about five minutes. But he said, how can that be? It's been going on. It's in full swing. I love it. I see no reason why it should not continue for two more hours. How do you know? Then Dr. Guinness answered, Because I have the score. See, he was following the score. I know it will soon be over. Because I have the score, and they are singing the last chorus. Hmm. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To have the score so that we know the events leading to the second advent of Jesus. Welcome to the second part of this series second coming reality, are we missing anything? Let us pray. Lord, I want to say one more prayer that you will open our hearts and minds today as we come to open your word and for you to teach us again the reality that we live in right before your soon return. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mommy, the little one asked. Was right before she was putting her to sleep. And the little girl says, Mommy, I'm so lonely for my friend Jesus. When is he going to come? The same question was asked by the 12 disciples of Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 3. In Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples come to Jesus. They are on Mount of Olives, overlooking Jerusalem. And Jesus, they say, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of age? And wisely, Jesus begins to answer with these words. Take heed that no one deceives you. How can you and I be deceived by the reality of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ? By missing the score. By not reading and studying what the Bible tells us about the second coming. It's so easy to be trapped into other teachings, into other uh, uh, philosophies and conspiracies. My friends, we have the word. We have the score. There is no reason for you and me to be deceived of the reality of the second coming of Jesus. Two weeks ago, in the first part of this series, we looked at two chapters in the Bible that present the signs and events right before Jesus comes the second time. We looked at Matthew 24 and Matthew 25 because even though there are many other Bible teachings on the second coming of Jesus, for the lack of time, we stayed And we'll stay with only with the words of Jesus. I mean, how much safer can you be than staying with the words of Jesus? Amen? In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is presenting what will happen before He comes. In Matthew 24, there are four types of signs that Jesus predicted will happen right before He comes back the second time during the time of the end. There will be signs in the natural world. There will be a moral decay, as in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. There will be signs in the political world, and there will be signs in the religious world. Four types of signs will happen before Jesus comes in the world. For a full exploration of those things, you can go back to our YouTube channel, to our website YouTube channel, and watch or listen to the sermon I preached two weeks ago, July uh, 31, 2021. There is a lot of confusion out there. You may say, Pastor Marius, why do I need to know these things? These things about the signs and things about the time of the end. Can I not just live my life? Can I not just be a good Christian? I tell you what, these things will not save you. Jesus saves you. The knowledge of these things will not save you. No, Jesus saves you. But if you don't know or ignore these things, you and I can get confused. We can get deceived, so this knowledge will not save you, but ignoring it can get you confused and even lost. There's a lot of confusion, as I said, a confusion about what happens when you die, confusion about what Jesus is doing now in the heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary, about how Jesus will come back the second time in the time frame when he will come back. There is Confusion infiltrating all churches regarding some of these signs. So, when His disciples came to Him and asked how will it be in the time of the end, the first thing Jesus told His disciple is, and also telling you and me today about the time we live in, He said, Take heed. In other words, Be careful that no one deceives you. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus presented what will come before, what's going to happen before he comes again. He's already told his disciples that he's going to leave planet Earth, but he's going to return. He's going to come back in glory and majesty as the king of kings and lords of and lords of lords, and he will take him back with him to heaven, where he prepared a praise for them. We read that as we started this sermon, Matthew uh, John 14, verses 1 to 3. And when the disciples asked Jesus, tell us when will these be, Jesus did not give them a date. He gave them a time frame and a context of history when His second coming will happen. He gave them a time frame. He gave them a list of signs that will happen so when they see these signs, they will recognize that He is about to return. And Jesus gave them signs in the world and signs in the church. Matthew, in Matthew 24, Jesus presents the state of the world before He comes. In Matthew 25, Jesus presented the state of the church before He comes. We looked at Matthew 24 and saw the state of the world before He comes. And we realized that the world that, that Matthew describes, that Jesus describes, is our world today. There are signs in the physical world, in nature, telling us Jesus is coming soon. If you just Google earthquakes and look for the graphs, you will see the frequency and the magnitude of earthquakes. Or if you uh, Google uh, tragedies for humanity in the last 200 years, you will see the graph. There is no question that the nature, the signs in the physical world tells us that Jesus is coming soon. It matches what Jesus is telling us in Matthew 24. There will be signs in, 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 in the political and religious world. Words and rumors of words. Signs. The moral decay. Wow. Moral decay speaks loudly. Jesus is coming again. That's Matthew 24. In Matthew 25 he presents the state of the church and he begins with the parable of the 10 virgins. If you never read it, look it up for yourself. Matthew 25 verses 1 to 11. We 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 read it and we explored in details 2 weeks ago. See, in this parable Jesus is presenting the reality of the church condition right before He comes. And He sadly concludes, in verse 11 of Matthew 25, Jesus concludes with a statement addressed to one group of people. And they're not people in the world. They're people of the church. He concludes with a statement. People of the church. People who call themselves Christians. And he says, I do not know you. Wow. My friends, does the bridegroom know you? Does he know you? What is the difference between the wise and the foolish virgins? After all, they well they all went to meet the bridegroom, right? They all took their lamps, right? They all had oil initially. They all had some oil because their lamps were burning. The problem, they did not have the extra or the reserve oil. And this is not a story with a happy ending, not at least for Half of them, five of them, did not make it to the wedding of the bridegroom, even though they were invited. What is the reason they didn't make it? What made the difference? The oil. The extra oil. In the Bible, oil represents the Holy Spirit. Oil represents the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is what gives light. It is represented in a tabernacle. If you Google again, you know, map of the tabernacle, you will see a map of the tabernacle that Moses built and was going all the way to Jesus' time. And you see there the, the, the golden candlestick. They, it is, it is the light in the sanctuary. It is what Guides us in what works through the lamp, which is the Word of God. You got to have the lamp and the oil in order to see clearly. You got to study the Bible and have the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You got to have the Holy Spirit in order to make it to the wedding of the bridegroom. Oil is the Holy Spirit. The wise virgins had. This extra oil. But the, ver- the foolish virgins did not. However, in verse 5, Jesus says that all of them fell asleep before the groom came. Right? That's how Jesus presents the state of the church before he comes. The church is in a lethargic state. Weary or lazy condition, or you can call it a lukewarm state. Where did you read about being lukewarm in Revelation 3 when Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea? God gave a prophetic history of the Christian church in the book of Revelation. Chapter 2 and 3 describe seven eras of the church history as they are addressed to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These literal churches represent seven historical eras of the church from the early apostolic church to today's church. The seventh church is described in Revelation 3, 14 to 21. Revelation 3, 14 to 21. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you. To buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with salve, that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me and my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Amen today's churches today's church era is called laodicea we live in the last dispensation in the last in the seventh era representing the church before jesus is coming again but there is a problem with the church before jesus comes back the church is lukewarm why is the church lukewarm why What does that mean? Most of the times you hear preachers preach on the lukewarmness of the church and it becomes a general warning against not having enough hot faith, uh, not being committed enough to walk with the Lord, um, or not having a holy enough lifestyle. But this is not all that there is to it. Why was Jesus, through John, using this metaphor of lukewarmness in the first place? Well, as with most things in the scripture, we have have to look at the historical context, the geography and background of the city. To the north of Laodicea, Hierapolis had healthy Hot springs. And to the south, to the south of the city, Colosse had cold springs that were clean and refreshing to drink. But Laodicea had always problems with its water supply, which was brought by aqueduct six miles from the south. By the time the water reached Laodicea, it had become lukewarm. It was warm, unclean, and undrinkable. The kind of water that makes you sick, that makes you spit or vomit out of your mouth. As Jesus said, He wants to do with the entire Laodicean church. To be spiritually healthy is to be either cold or hot. To be spiritually sick is to be lukewarm. Cold water is refreshing and reviving. Hot water is cleansing. The New Testament scholar Michael Gorman says, lukewarmness is is not an ancient metaphor for indifference. Rather, it presents two antithetical points, the first of which is illustrated with two images hot water and cold water both of these are pleasing and beneficial while lukewarm water is precisely the opposite disgusting to taste and not salutary lukewarmness he says means so means here so prosperous and supposedly self sufficient people as to be completely out of the fellowship with jesus And John in Revelation 3.17 says, Because you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There's another item to consider uh, uh, about this illustration, and that is how hot and cold waters are therapeutic. Why is this lukewarm condition so serious for God? See, God desires that the church be either hot or cold. He desires the church to be of therapeutic value to this earth. Lukewarm is not therapeutic. It offers little benefit to those who come in contact with it. God wants his church to bring life everywhere it goes. This is similar to what Jesus said in Matthew 5 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot under by men. Both salt and cold, hot cold hydrotherapy, are therapeutic. Jesus wants His church to be the agent of healing in the world. When we read the message in Revelation 3, we can clearly see that God's warning to the last daily Laodicean Christians is very serious. We must wake up to our condition of, of where we are and allow God to change us from non-therapeutic to therapeutic if we are to be ready when Jesus comes. The question is, how can we be changed from non-therapeutic to therapeutic? You know, the message to Laodicea, fortunately, doesn't end with the warning. It also has a solution. Jesus said, Revelation 3.20, Speaking to the Laodicean church, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. How do we let him in? Through the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I will pray the Father and He will give you another helper that He may abide with you forever. John 14, 16-18 The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him for He dwells with you and will be in you. And then Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. In these verses, Jesus tells us the disciples that he would come to them when the Holy Spirit will live in them. And this took place in the day of the Pentecost. And that same Christian experience is available for all of His disciples, including you and me, today. It is through the baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus lives in the believer today. In 1 John three twenty four, John writes, Now he who keeps His commandments, uh, commandments abides in Him, and He in Him, and by this we know that He abides in, he, in us, By the Spirit whom He has given us. My friends, we cannot keep His commandments without the Holy Spirit. That's what I prayed for Adam. Because I knew immediately in my personal experience, it wasn't long after being baptized that I realized I have no power over sin. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is available to us. What will the baptism of the Holy Spirit do for the lukewarm Christian? The infilling of God's Spirit will bring revival, and revival is the only answer to Laodicea's problem. Only by revival will the church become therapeutic in this world. Only through revival will the church come to a spiritual condition that God can use her in a mighty way to deliver men and women from the power of darkness. We cannot do it in our own power, folks. We can do as many evangelistic series as we want. If we don't have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't avail much. And White in... Selected messages. She writes The baptism of the Holy Spirit, as on the day of Pentecost, will lead to a revival of true religion and to the performance of many wonderful works. My friends, the baptism of the Holy Spirit gives the Laodicean Christian the power needed to be revived spiritually and also the power for winning. It is a, a double winner. When you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to live a godly life. And you have the authority and you have the power to witness for Christ. Jesus knew the importance of what would happen when the Holy Spirit would be poured out in the early rain power on the day of Pentecost. And he said, I came to send fire. Luke twelve forty nine. I came to send fire on the earth and how I wished it were already kindled. Wow, what fire was Jesus speaking of? The fire of the Holy Spirit. Luke 3:16. Jesus said. Uh, 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 John writes. John answered. Luke writes. John answered, saying to all, "I indeed baptize you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire." Wow. Jesus baptized his disciples with Holy Spirit. He desires and wants to baptize you and me, his disciple in his church, before he comes. He wants us to to, to be baptized with his Holy Spirit. Now the question is, how does the Laodicean Christian receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and experience revival? That's a good question, Right? Let me tell you, you and I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit the same way believers always have since the day of the Pentecost, by prayerfully claiming His promise. Jesus said, it is a promise. The baptism was received by the early church on the day of the Pentecost as a result of their united praying for 10 days claiming His promise. Acts chapter 1 presents what happened to the early church and what should happen to the last church. Verse 4, Acts 1 verse 4. And being assembled together with them, He commanded them, who is this talking here? Is Jesus. It is a command. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait. That was the verse I was referring to when I told Adam to wait. 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 To be baptized <clears throat> for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then you scroll down to verse 8. But you shall receive power from the Holy, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and all the way to the end of the earth. Verse 14. These all, speaking of the early church, continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Ellen White, in, Select, in a book called Selected Messages, book one, page 121, she says, A revival need to be expected only in answer to prayer. Dear Middletown Church, My friends and YouTube viewers, I want to be part of this last day's revival. I want to be part of God's people who will bring healing in this world. I want to have Jesus living in me and through me so Jesus' words might be fulfilled in me. That greater work than he did, I will do. I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And I invite you to join me. In fact, I invite you to join me, my wife Pam, and 43 others who walked in the Spirit for the last year. On August 28th, we will have a Sabbath of consecration. A Holy Spirit Sabbath. Sabbath. The early church disciples took 10 days to fast and pray for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come upon them and fill them. I invite you to join me, to join us, 43, 44, 45 individuals on that Sabbath, to join us in dedication, consecration, and begin to walk in the Spirit. And I invite you to fast and pray for 10 days prior to this event, beginning this coming Wednesday. Beginning this coming Wednesday all the way to the 28th, there are 10 days. You can fast from food, or you can fast from anything that disconnects you from your heavenly Father. It may be food, but it may be music, the kind of music you may listen to, or movies or TV. I don't know, news or maybe social media, anything that creates a roadblock, or a, a stumbling block between you and the Lord. On August 28th, we will have guest speakers to share their testimony of walking with the, the, the Holy Spirit. And we'll have our own people sharing their testimonies, how they walked with the Lord in the Spirit for the last years. And we'll have communion as a symbol of reconnection and revival for our spiritual life. So plan to attend and invite a Christian friend whom you know is serious about getting closer with God to have an intimate spiritual life filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you want to to, to, to become part of the Holy Spirit groups, the list is open. You can see me after service. And we will register you in one of the groups. I pray that God bless Middletown with a new fresh walk with the Lord. Amen.